Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. On today's program, I'll be talking to Steppenwolf Theater co-founder Jeff Perry about the theater's new performance space and his role in the company's current production of Seagull. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to review the play titled The Luckiest. Later in the show, the Daily Herald's Sean Stangland will join me to preview the summer movie season. Will cinema lovers return to the theater this summer? And we'll hear about an architecture exhibit in the western suburbs. All that's coming up. Thanks for making some time for Arts and Culture this morning. One of Steppenwolf Theater's founding fathers is back home for the inaugural production at its new In the Round Ensemble Theater. Jeff Perry, who co-founded the acclaimed theater company with Gary Sinise and Terry Kinney, is part of the ensemble cast for this new production of Anton Chekhov's Seagull. Perry helped turn Steppenwolf into one of the country's most respected theater companies, and for the past three decades, he's appeared and starred in several immensely popular TV series, including Grey's Anatomy, Scandal, and Nash Bridges. He was also recently in the hit Netflix show Inventing Anna that premiered earlier this year. Now he's back in Chicago playing the character Peter Soren in this new production of Seagull. I recently caught up with the Highland Park native to talk about being back at Steppenwolf, this new theater space, and his exciting new TV project. I know you have a, a busy schedule working on uh, TV, film, and other theater projects. Uh, how often do you come back to, to Steppenwolf for productions? I'm back uh, at least two, three times a year seeing, seeing our stuff. And I, I moved to L.A. Actors are pretty nomadic, but kind of it became my principal zip code uh, Los Angeles in uh, you know, about eight, 1988. When's the last time you were in a Steppenwolf production? I have done a couple of moments. So I was part of a me and fellow ensemble member Aura Jones were part of a like a, a little musical theater workshop for four or five days a couple of years ago. Okay. And then before and then before that, on a Monday night when our main stage theater was was dark at sixteen fifty Falstead, um, I did a one night with a composer friend who created a piece called Stand Up Shakespeare. And it had uh, four musicians and myself, two singers. It's kind of like a mosh pit uh, from the Shakespeare canon, along with um, songs composed uh, by Ray Leslie. So it, it was a lovely piece. Now, before that, the regular old sit-down play, I got to be in the amazing Tracy Let's Play, August Osage County. So and that's a long time. That yeah, was 20... it's, it's been a while. Yeah, yeah, it's been a while, man. I covered the. Uh, we're going to talk about the the new space, the ensemble theater here in a second. And I was there for the uh, announcement where they had the uh, the press conference, and you were there and you spoke on stage. And, and then 
That day, I caught up with Yasin Piankov, uh, who's the director of this production of The, the Seagull, and we, he mentioned uh, The Seagull, and he, he said something about, you know, he's worked on the translation and ad- adaptation of this for, uh, for 15 years. Yes, yes, yes. It's long been in his heart. He's been able to direct many uh, of che- Chekhov's other and or act in Chekhov's other major plays, um, like Three Sisters and Cherry Orchard and Ivanov, and and uh, um, but but the, the Seagull was was something that he wanted to do for a long time, and he has created such a beautiful contemporary while being faithful translation of this work. He kind of had a mantra for himself and for the costume designer and set designer. He said, I want to remove every obstacle that freezes it in the 1890s. I want it to really coexist all the way to 2022 America. So, for instance, when he had phrases where where it could be authentic to, to Chekhov's original Russian, but being Americanized phrase, he always he always went to the contemporary phrase, and so the 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 production in its in its spirit and and in the acting just feels very much like it coexists all the way from the 1890s to to right now. Have you ever done a? Have you ever been in the Seagull before? I never have. I've seen a few productions. And I kind of studied it, and I teach uh, scene study with to fellow actors, and I've I've worked on you know um, taught and kind of worked on uh, different scenes from it, so I was very familiar with it. But uh, this has been a beautiful revelation of this is like emotional jazz, and doing it. I know I'm segueing to another part of our talk, but. Doing it in this new ensemble theater, whose 400 seats feel, oh my gosh, Gary, they just feel as intimate as, you know, 150 seats in, in, in an auditorium. It's, it's five rows of, of seats, everything. You can, the acoustics are remarkable. The space is quite beautiful and comfortable. And you just feel like you, from the actor's perspective, you feel like you can use your whole kind of range of everything from really subtle film, filmic kind of expression to everything from whispering to screaming, basically. <laughs> and it's all seen and heard, and you're surrounded by the audience. We're getting a remarkable feedback from, from the audience of saying, Oh, I love the feeling of this new space. Yeah, I was kind of curious about, and you alluded to it, just the the actor's perspective, uh, the difference between acting on a stage in the round compared to the traditional proscenium. It's almost well, like... the, tradi- the, the traditional proscenium, you know, com- uh, uh, doesn't always have to, but it kind of comes with a more presentational, face front um, kind of acting style. And usually it's the, 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 the picture frame of a proscenium kind of lends, lends itself to that. 
And you find yourself, well, if I've got to choose, I've really got to play to the back of the audience as opposed to favor the people who are closer. And, and those choices, those kind of choices are almost uh, eradicated and taken away in, in this intimate, in the round kind of space. Um, they're both satisfying, they're both wonderful to play in, but honestly, you can, you can really do, in, in a way, you can do more filmic acting in the, in, in the round space. Let's listen to a clip of Jeff in this new production of Seagull. In this scene, his character Peter Soren is talking to his nephew, whose true love is just about to arrive to see his play. I love men of literature. When I was young, there were two things I wanted passionately to get married and to become a writer. Neither one worked out, but yeah. I'd have been a writer. Cost you would have been happy. Ah! I think she's coming. I can't live without her. Even her footsteps are magnificent. I'm out of my mind for happiness. My enchantress. My dream. Tell me I'm not late. I can't be late. No, no, oh, I was no. so worried all day. I was terrified. I was afraid father wouldn't let me go. He just left with my stepmother. The sky was turning red and the moon was starting to rise. That was a scene from Steppenwolf Theater's new production, Seagull, which is running in the company's new ensemble theater through June 12th. You heard Jeff Perry, Namir Smallwood, and Carolyn Neff. If you're just tuning in, this is the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek, and I'm talking with Steppenwolf co-founder Jeff Perry. So definitely excited to, to see Seagull before it closes on June 12th. Also wanted to, to talk to you about a couple other things. As I mentioned earlier, when you're not on stage, you're taking part in all these different other uh, TV and film projects. My wife and I just binged Inventing Anna on Netflix. You were great as this grizzled old school reporter. What was it like working on that project? Oh, it was a blast, man. First of all, I thought that Shonda Rhimes' creation of what she dubbed uh, Scriberia which was basically the, <laughs> uh, the more middle-aged and older, in my case, um, uh, journalists, kind of being the mentors, once in a while, a little bit of the tormentors, but mostly the mentors and cheerleaders of uh, Anna Klumsky, who plays uh, uh, a younger journalist. And and that was Terry Kinney, fellow Steppenwolf co-founder and great dear dear best buddy, um, along with Gary Sinise, our other founder. Anyway, it was Terry Kinney and I and Anna DeVere Smith, who is a remarkable actress, writer, uh, uh, scholar. And um, we had a blast getting to play that. I thought Shonda's creation of that as a device in the uh, limited series of Anna Delvey was was really kind of brilliant. I don't know. It just it just sort of grounded the journalism side of the story, in a way. And we had a blast. We just had so much fun doing it. Terry and I have done decades and decades and decades of of theater work together. And we met when I was eighteen and he was nineteen on the campus of Illinois State University in the theater department. But we had never done any camera work together. Wow. And so it was like it was like a reunion and something new for us, and we just we had a ball. 
you talked at the beginning, you know, you moved out to, to L.A. In, in the 80s. What's uh, something you try to make time for when you when you make it back to the Chicago area? Well, my somewhat Los Angeles-based, uh, almost new son-in-law who grew up in Montreal, I was able to, from a dear childhood friend, uh, generosity, I, I sent uh, the youngsters in their 30s um, to uh, a Cubs and Dodgers game. And so uh, uh, that that is a great treat. I kind of lived vicariously through that because the, <laughs> the Cubs were my growing up team. I, I grew up in Highland Park, right. so uh, uh, somewhat naturally the North Side ball team was was the one I followed. And um, uh, so that uh, haven't been yet, but I love going to the Art Institute. I love uh, been renting the city gibby bikes and going up and down the lake and and biking to and from work from uh, downtown and uh, and sampling different restaurants and stuff. You know, I love it. I love it. Well, uh... love being here. We love having you you back, and I appreciate you making time to to talk to me. I'm looking forward to, to checking out Seagull and, and seeing what your next uh, TV and film project is. Hey, I'll give you I'll give you the the latest. Yeah, give it to I'm, me. I'm I'm part of an ABC TV show that is I don't know if it's permanently or temporarily titled Alaska, and it'll be on the fall schedule, first airing sometime in this September. On ABC, on Thursday nights, following Grey's Anatomy. Oh, wow. And that's what used to be on that show, too. That's right. <laughs> and um, it's, a, it's a story about journalism. It's based on uh, the Anchorage Daily News in Anchorage, Alaska. And um, I play a newspaper editor. And Hillary Swank plays a veteran reporter. And we've got an amazing cast of about six or eight other wonderful actors. And it's written and directed by Tom McCarthy, who oh, wow. wrote and directed Spotlight, yeah, the, the Station Agent, and many beautiful films. That sounds tremendous. Did you, uh, did you have to film on location? We filmed in Vancouver, and a skeletal crew filmed in um, Anchorage, Alaska okay. as well. Yeah. You're, uh, you're Chicago... Area roots would have prepared you, I'm sure, for the uh, the Alaska weather. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> you you can't scare me. We're from Chicago. We know wind chill. Yep, exactly. I uh, who did I, I interviewed someone? Uh, uh, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra's new uh, Mead composer in residence, and she said how much she uh, loved it uh, here in Chicago, and she was thinking of um, making the. The move from New York, and I asked if she had ever been here in January, and so she thought that was funny. Well, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> but that show, that show, uh, Alaska, sounds fantastic. So I'll, I'll definitely. Oh keep yeah, man, out. check it. Yeah, check it out because uh, we, we we were really I haven't seen it, but I know working on the uh, the initial episode, the pilot, was a blast, and it's it's simultaneously about such interesting things. It arose from a series of articles that won a Pulitzer Prize for the Anchorage Daily News. Um, a few years back, about missing and murdered indigenous women in Alaska. And the television show is kind of simultaneously about that. It's about journalism in general, 
and print journalism in general and online journalism in general. And it's uh, also about cancel culture in a way. Okay. And uh, it should be really good. Jeff, again, thanks so much. Uh, it's uh, a pleasure to talk to you. Nice talking to you, Gary, and thanks for doing this. And Everybody come see Seagull. <laughs> That was Jeff Perry. He's the co-founder of Steppenwolf Theater and part of the ensemble cast of the company's current production, Seagull, which is being presented in the new ensemble theater through June 12th. Go to steppenwolf.org for more info. And a quick reminder, if you listen to the arts section every Sunday morning on WDCB, make sure to check out the program's website over at theartsection.org. You can find archived episodes and individual features you can listen to anytime you want, uh, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the program. Go to theartsection.org. I'm on a road. I'm on a road. This And you are tuned into the arts section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm joined now remotely by the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Good morning, Gary. Raven Theaters presenting the Chicago premiere of The Luckiest. Melissa Ross's 2019 play focuses on two best friends, Peter and Lisette. And their friendship is impacted when one of them is diagnosed with ALS. Carrie, do you want to fill us in a little bit more on the premise? How does this play unfold? You mentioned that it's uh, about a relationship between Lisette and Peter. Um, they, it's not a romantic relationship. They are friends. Peter is a gay man. Lisette is uh, a straight woman. They meet at a party um, and sort of hit it off right away. But when we first meet them, this is a play that moves back and forth in time through a series of sort of interlocking vignettes. It's a very different kind of party than the one we see them meet at, uh, uh, just a scene later. The, the party that opens this show is actually a, I, and I don't think it's a spoiler because this is <laughs> from the very top of the show, we learn Lisette has ALS and is planning on uh doing an assisted suicide and wants to have this final party to say goodbye to her friends to kind of, you know, really celebrate herself before this happens. So Peter uh, is helping her with that. And then as the scenes unfold, we see them, how they meet, we see how the relationship develops. We also meet Lisette's mother, Cheryl, a very uh, straight-talking Boston uh, single mom and uh, who has her own mixed feelings about what her daughter is, has decided to do at end of life. Um, but I wouldn't really say so much that this is a play about assisted suicide as much as it is how people build relationships over time and who we find to depend on, especially when things start getting dark for us. I don't know. What is your take on that, Jonathan? Well, uh, I'm going to I'm going to start out with something that I don't think, Carrie, you've ever heard me say on the show. And, Gary, I don't think you've ever heard me say it either. And I'm going to start out and say, folks, go see this play. <laughs> Do not miss this production. 
I can't remember the last time a show gobsmacked me the way The Luckiest did. It yeah. really, really is that well-written and that well-cast and that well-directed and that laugh-out-loud funny and that moving. Mm-hmm. And I know a play about a woman who contracts ALS doesn't sound like much fun, and the subject certainly is not, but the play really crushes it on entertainment value alone thanks to the savvy work of the playwright, Melissa Ross, and wonderfully astute casting and direction by Cody Estelle, who was the artistic director of the Raven Theatre Company. You know, at, at, at the heart, in terms of the structure, this is a buddy comedy of sorts. <laughs> yes, said, absolutely. Said, and of course, buddy, buddy comedies, they, they can't be lovers. They're just, they're just best friends. And, uh, and that's the way it, it, it it turns out because, as you said, the third person in the triangle, and there are only three characters, is Lisette's mother, Cheryl. Uh, Cheryl is family, but Peter is the caretaker. And mm-hmm. the crux of the luckiest is the relationship between Peter and Lisette, and how that friendship affects both of them and the mother, Cheryl, as well. Now, uh, full disclosure here. I had a brother-in-law who died of ALS last year. Uh, probably contracted due to exposure to Agent Orange in Vietnam. And he chose the time and occasion for pulling the plug. And maybe that gave me an emotional connection to the luckiest that others will not have. But, you know, I don't think so. Because many of us, if not everyone, but many of us, have watched essentially helplessly as someone dear to us wastes away from something. So I think most of us will connect to this production the way I did, or close to it. I, I have to agree that it's, it, it's absolutely moving. It's beautifully calibrated in the performances, in the direction. I know it sounds like when you start talking about terminal illness, you know, that you're getting into, you know, bathos, but that is, it's so refreshingly free of that, um, which isn't to say it is not emotionally moving, but I did not feel at all manipulated by it at any point. It just lays out these characters, and I think a lot of that is with the structure that Melissa Ross uses. You know, see, since it's not a straight chronology, we see people back and forth in time. And I think especially as people get towards the end of their lives, or we get towards the end of our time with people, we are kind of holding these multiple images of our loved ones. We see them as they are now, which, which when they're struggling with whatever it is that might be soon taking them away from us. I've not had ALS, but a lot of cancer in my family, and a lot of those moments. Um, but also, we, we remember when we met them. We remember that night at the bar. We remember that party. We remember that running joke, you know, that perhaps we've yep. had. Uh, just the little quirks that they have that nobody else may be quite appreciated. This is a play that is so smart about relationships. And again, it doesn't have to be a romantic relationship. This, uh, I would say that it's not really Will and Grace time with, you know, with Peter and Lizette because, you know, they're both uh, not quite as, um, I don't know how to put it, but um, they have, a, you know, they have lots of neuroses, but they also have a strong sense of who they are and a recognition early on we are better together as friends than either of us would be without each other. And I think what's really beautiful is the way that Tara Mallon, Cheryl, and I think this is a wonderful performance from Tara Mallon, and she really nails that kind of straight-talking, no-nonsense, very loving, occasionally confused (laughs) mother, um, and the way that she becomes, in a way, a mother for Peter as well. Um, You know, there's just this 
lovely sense of how the world expands when you open yourself up to other people, you know, as friends. Yeah. And and even even when things get hard, because you've had that, you somehow have the strength to do the needful thing as yeah. they get to the end of their time. The three-person cast, uh, I think, is perfection. Cassidy Slaughter-Mason as Lizette, Christopher Wayland as Peter, and as you just said, Carrie, veteran Tara Malin, borrowed from Rivendell Theatre Company, <laughs> Tara Malin as Cheryl, the mother. Wayland as Peter, uh, as, as, um, um, as Peter has a less flashy role than either of the women, but that doesn't make it any less dramatically effective or important, as he often is the mother-daughter go-between in their sometimes fractious relationship. All three offer a masterful combination of humor and, and I would say pathos in the best sense of the word, mm-hmm. not the not the not not bathos, but pathos. right. <laughs> um, a, a great combination, and the emotional changes from one to the other, which sometimes are instantaneous, are all completely believable. Uh, director Cody Estel has shaped this production so very, very well that his work becomes invisible. And that is one of the highest compliments I think you can pay a director. Okay. Well, that's uh, two strong recommendations. Raven Theater's production of The Luckiest uh, continues through June 19th. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're, you're welcome, Carrie. welcome. Always good to talk with you, especially when both of us really have liked the show. <laughs> <laughs> You're tuned into the arts section. The Elmhurst Art Museum kicked off a year-long celebration of its milestone 25th anniversary earlier this year with a new exhibition that looks back at the influence of a local architect. Titled Houses of Tomorrow, Solar Homes from Keck to Today, the exhibit offers a closer look at the innovations created by architect George Fred Keck, including the glass house he built for the 1933 World's Fair. The exhibition will be up for one more week. I visited the West Suburban-based museum this past February to learn more about the exhibit and its anniversary plans. 25 years is actually quite young, right? But for us, I think it it shows kind of establishment. This is Elmhurst Art Museum Executive Director John McKinnon. And of course, the last two years have been very different than any other two years in our history uh, because of COVID, COVID recovery protocols, adjustments, all sorts of things, but how it shaped up after moving a lot of different things with our exhibition schedule because of COVID was we were able to very succinctly set up a spring season celebrating architecture, a summer season setting up a number of things around kind of education, and then the fall season will culminate that 25th anniversary. We'll have a rededication, uh, an exhibit about our founder, and a number of other things. And so we're really looking forward to the whole year. And we'll, it'll be punctuated by a number of things, including a fall fundraiser. The anniversary programming reflects the museum's commitment to art, architecture, and education. Several years ago, the Elmhurst Art Museum shifted its layout to better incorporate Mies van der Rohe's McCormick House into the institution's programming. That shift seems to have amplified the museum's approach to architecture. 
I think that we've sharpened our focus. We probably have done some design and architecture shows in the past, but I think in combination with the restoration project that we did a few years ago of the McCormick House and really increased its visibility, we also increased the number of our architecture and design programming. Uh, so really, when we did that construction, it was not just a physical transformation, but a more philosophical, where we now say we do three things, art, education, and architecture. The new Houses of Tomorrow exhibit fits right into the museum's increased emphasis on architecture. It illuminates the somewhat overlooked innovations of local architects and brothers, George Fred and William Keck. Keck and Keck, or even just George Fred Keck, who's credited with designing the House of Tomorrow at the World's Fair in 1933, aren't household names. However, it's interesting to look at, say, the mid-century uh, housing market and many of their homes are desirable. So if you're kind of in that kind of niche market or have those interests, uh, you would really love to buy their homes because they have big uh, windows south, facing south, often more energy efficient, a lot of really great kind of assets that we look to today. In terms of their legacy as architects, or um, how we might look at them today versus, say, names like Mies van der Rohe, Frank Lloyd Wright. In a very similar way, their houses are affordable and more available than, say, living in a Frank Lloyd Wright house or Mies van der Rohe house, which there are only three of in the U.S. They built a lot more, hundreds of homes in the Midwest, uh, lots of them concentrated in the Chicagoland area because they were based in Chicago, and sometimes whole developments, whole neighborhoods. McKinnon says Keck's work is especially relevant at the Elmhurst Art Museum when you consider the links to Mies van der Rohe's structures. If you take Mies van der Rohe, who we're very tied to because of the 1952 McCormick House we oversee, and you take George Fred Keck, there's this parallel story that you can tell. Mies van der Rohe is credited with being the father of the modern skyscraper. The steel and glass architecture is what he's famous for. But really, George Fred Keck did that earlier than Mies van der Rohe, at least in the U.S. The 1933 all-glass House of Tomorrow preceded any other glass house Mies van der Rohe did in the U.S. by nearly 15 years. Mies van der Rohe then went on to develop this, what they called international style, and develop these large skyscrapers and develop all these other things that we are now a certain template. You see them all the time, and you probably don't think about it too much, but you take it for granted. On the other side, when George Fred Keck was designing his glass house, he became interested in its efficiency and really turned right where Mies van der Rohe turned left. And Keck could have had that same career, could have even, you know, maybe beat Mies van der Rohe to other firsts, such as that first glass house. He was, you know, a very in-demand architect at the time, but maybe it's because of this turn that we don't know him as a household name. Instead, George Fred Keck and his brother William decided that there was something about this glass quality that they could further in a kind of engineering sense. And so then they went on to develop more energy efficient homes. Um, and it's interesting to think about it today because we still have these steel and glass skyscrapers of Mies van der Rohe. And we also have these energy efficient homes which are very relevant, right, to climate change, to many other reasons why people might want to even save energy. And so both of them are present today, and we thought maybe we should look at this other story through the, the lens of 
George Fred Keck, we could look at mid-century homes a different way than we had been just through the McCormick House. McKinnon hopes that visitors who come see the exhibit leave thinking about the broader ways architecture can influence sustainability and the environment. Well, I hope that people leave with a different sense of, of the architect Keck and Keck and Keck, but I also hope that we can think about how we live in some of our own homes or some of our office buildings or other places, what we can do to make it more efficient, what we can do to prevent things like climate change. And so there is a call to action at the very end uh, where people can learn more about uh, their different energy efficient options, uh, different nonprofits that are also trying to work with the idea of solar and new innovations like actual solar panels, which Keck you know, didn't have the capability to use at his time, but really would have made the most out of if, if he had the chance. That's John McKinnon. He's the executive director of the Elmhurst Art Museum. Its latest exhibit, Houses of Tomorrow, Solar Homes from Keck to Today, will be on display one more week through May 29th. You can find more information at elmhurstartmuseum.org. My name is Gary Zydek. This is the art section, a.k.a. the danger zone. Just kidding. For decades, studios have targeted their blockbusters for summer releases. And for a long time, we would see gigantic box office numbers when the weather got warmer. But things were already starting to change in the film industry when the pandemic erupted 26 months ago. COVID has amplified some of those trends as it feels like a growing number of people are content to watch movies at home rather than make an outing to a cinema. At the same time, we are still seeing some gigantic box office returns for certain films. Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness opened to $187 million two weeks ago, notching not only the second-best domestic launch since COVID-19, but the 11th biggest North American opening weekend of all time. And of course, Spider-Man No Way Home opened in mid-December when COVID numbers were a lot more prevalent and landed the second-highest domestic debut in history with $260 million. On the flip side, there have been a fair share of box office disappointments over the past two years. Joining me in studio for the first time in three years to talk about the current state of the film industry and what he's looking forward to seeing this summer is Daily Herald assistant news editor and widescreen columnist Sean Stangland. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. <laughs> We're going to talk about uh, summer movie season, and I know we can't predict the, the future. Fingers crossed we don't see a drastic surge in COVID cases that require hospitalizations. But if things stay the way they are now, do you think we'll see summer box office performances return to pre-pandemic levels? I don't know if anyone can predict whether that's going to happen, but I think the, the true test is coming right away because we're going to have the two biggest movies that aren't Marvel movies coming right at the beginning of the summer. We've got Top Gun Maverick on the 27th of May and then two weeks later, Jurassic World Dominion. So I think that's going to be a good bellwether for the rest of the summer right out of the gate. Uh, right now, I don't, I'm not sure if the pandemic is really what's hurting box office or if it's just the shrinking theatrical window which, of course, is a byproduct of the pandemic. Even before the pandemic, the standard theatrical window was down to 75 days, meaning that like two and a half months after the movie premiered in theaters, you could get it at home. 
since the pandemic, that has become 45 days, so a month and a half. And that's already been borne out on, like, uh, The Lost City, which was a Sandra Bullock, Channing Tatum movie, is already on Paramount+. Plus. Mm-hmm. Jackass Forever is already on Paramount+. Plus. Uh, and in some cases, that very small window is shrinking even further. Uh, the Northman, which is not a small movie, it was... A, it, it's a $90 million Viking epic from Robert Eggers. came out April 22nd, and my wife and I watched it at home this past Friday. So that was, you know, 21-day theatrical window for that. And we paid $24.99 for that on Vudu, which is honestly the same we would have right. spent going to the movies. So the more that short theatrical window sticks around, the less inclined some people are going to be to going to the movie theater. Tom Cruise is certainly fighting that. He doesn't want Top Gun Maverick to be on Paramount Plus in 45 days. And I think Mr. Cruz will get what he wants. Uh, (laughs) But um, if I know in some cases I only have to wait three weeks to see a movie and not have to leave my couch, I'm going to wait the three weeks. COVID kind of sped things up, but these were trends already in motion. It just feels like people are content to, to watch things at home. And there's a lot of reasons for it, not just because of COVID, but the theatrical experience has just gone down. I think we've talked about this before. The going to the movie theater has just gone downhill. It gets more expensive and people get <laughs> behave worse and worse. I do feel like, like there's a certain aspect right now to going in public anywhere. It's like, oh, some people have forgotten how to behave. Right. <laughs> That's for sure. Um, I think content content is king. Uh, you know, it's kind of a dirty word when people when we're talking about movies and TV shows as content instead of as artistic endeavors. But if you have content that people want to spend money on, they will spend the money on it. So we will find out if how many people are willing to make the commitment to go see Top Gun and Jurassic World in theaters very soon. Right. So there's this interesting d- distinction because, uh, like you said, it's about the content. It's something like Steven Spielberg's West Side Story was critically acclaimed, but it really didn't perform that well. I think in the past, it would have brought out people. That's like something I think that people were okay to wait for. That is one of the more depressing cases of a a box office flop. That is a movie that just in concept, you're like, why is that even happening? Why is Steven Spielberg (laughs) remaking possibly the greatest movie musical of all time? And then you go see it, it's like, oh, he made a better version. (laughs) Um, The fact that we didn't see that movie and we collectively as a people didn't see that movie in the theater is really, it's, it's frustrating on a lot of levels. I didn't see it in the theater. And I even said to myself, when, when this comes on Disney plus, I'm going to be really mad. I didn't do this. Yeah. But by the same token, COVID was surging. (laughs) Yeah. So it's, you know, the timing is a big issue for a lot of these things. And um, some people were willing, some studios are willing to hold on to their content that they think is going to drive, drive big money. And certainly Tom Cruise was not willing to let Top Gun go out there early. Right. I was thinking about that. So let's talk about some of these uh, summer films. And uh, the next really big release this year is going to be uh, the Top Gun sequel, Maverick. Uh, they finished filming this in, in 2018, and then it was scheduled for 2019 but there was a delay yes we've been seeing trailers for this movie for literally four (laughs) years by all accounts it is absolutely worth the wait this showed in full about a month ago at CinemaCon, which is basically a trade show for for the movie industry and the people who attend that i think there is an expectation that they are going to be cheerleaders for everything they see this the the whole idea of this event is hey the movies are back Uh, and the reactions to top gun maverick out of that were so over the top 
to almost be comical. <laughs> but then last week they showed it to critics for the first time of the first wave of critics. And the reactions were pretty much the same. The same very enthusiastic David Ehrlich, who's one of the tougher critics online, uh, said that the difference in quality between Top Gun and Top Gun Maverick is so large. It's such a, it's, it's such a better movie. And it's not we're not comparing like Paddington 1 to Paddington 2. He oh, said yeah. we're comparing Morbius to Paddington 2. Yeah, I read that. So setting the bar that Top Gun Maverick <laughs> is going to be one of the best theatrical experiences you will see. It's hard to doubt it coming from Tom Cruise, who has had extra uh, two extra years, basically three extra years to perfect this movie uh, with his now partner, Christopher McQuarrie. They, they make every movie together now. He was brought in after the script was written, and basically he's now put out front as the writer of the film. Hmm. Uh, they're, you know, Tom Cruise and Christopher McQuarrie are, are a package deal now. They do everything together. So they've had all this time to refine the film, re-edit, uh, probably re-edit the film. There are stories that they threw out all the music, oh, yeah. that they had, they had bought all this, you know, pop, all this licensed music for the movie. They threw it all out. Um, and now the like even the music credits itself credit four composers, including Lady Gaga and Hans Zimmer. <laughs> so yeah. it's like they've had all this time to like build this all-star team of a movie, and now I just we just have to see it. And it, 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 hopefully, it can live up to these impossible expectations. But if anything can, it's a Tom Cruise movie at this point. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. I'm, I'm of that generation where the original Top Gun was one of my favorite movies, so I was excited as soon as I heard it announced. I am seeing a lot in the press about will a younger generation care? I mean, if it's a good movie, I think you don't need to see the first Top Gun to f I think follow the plot of <laughs> Top Gun Maverick. No, probably not. And I, I think there's going to be a big payoff for fans of the original that they're being careful to not show in the commercials. Um, yeah, the, the question mark is, will a younger audience turn out for this? But I wonder if they even have to. Right. You know, James Bond, No Time to Die, just did just fine without getting a younger audience. And like you say, if the if this movie is as great as everyone says it is, it'll be a movie that, you, that people will want to bring others to see again. I have to think Paramount knew what it was doing because, like, the James Bond uh, movie and then Fast and Furious 9, I mean, if they really thought they could have held it another year i feel like paramount was like really holding this until they felt like they could get their maximum response from theater goers yeah i think you can kind of sense when the studio knows they have the goods mm -hmm. uh, and they certainly know they have the goods here I mean, they the fact that they were confident enough to screen it a month ahead of time at CinemaCon, that that tells you right there that you know we're, we are confident that we will have a full month of buzz of good buzz for this movie before it even comes out um, Sony did that last year with Ghostbusters Afterlife, where they screened it in full at New York Comic Con like two or three months before the movie even came out. Uh, and that's another movie that they were holding on to for a while. Um, so these legacy sequels or legacy sequels, <laughs> uh, if, you, uh, if you do them well, it pays off big time. I, you know, this is a trend that started with Force Awakens, and that certainly was a great movie that paid off big time. So this is all, these are all kind of modeled on that, I would say. The, Top Gun Maverick does look like the Force Awakens of Top Gun. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a good segue for the next film we're going to talk about. And uh, Jurassic World Dominion will be released on June 10th. And this is kind of like the sixth chapter in the Jurassic Park universe after a, a pretty big break after part three. And this time we'll see some old favorites joining with the uh, contemporary cast. Yes. Yeah, so uh, Sam Neill, Laura Dern, and Jeff Goldblum are all coming back 
for this movie. It's the first one where they all three of them have appeared together in the movie. Um, and they are going all indications are they are major cast members of this. It's not like little walk-ons. They are going to be part of the action. And the first teaser for this movie was spectacular. It was literally jaw-dropping. Uh, the premise is that the dinosaurs have gotten loose in the world. So you see all these beautiful nature vistas with dinosaurs in them, things we haven't seen. We've only seen, you know, Jurassic Park. It's always in this, this jungle setting. Uh, this trailer has, like, you know, busting broncos and, <laughs> and, and dinosaurs on the American plane. And, you know, then you throw in the, the John Williams music and you can't lose. The problem is the full trailer came out and revealed what the plot is, and the plot is so stupid. <laughs> but will that matter? Will it matter that the plot is uh, Chris Pratt trying to save his favorite baby raptor? The last Jurassic Park, what was that one called? Uh, Fallen Kingdom, Fallen. which was uh, directed by J.A. Bayona who's a horror director, and now this is going back to Colin Trevorrow, who's written all three. Okay. I mean, there's, I guess, recency bias, but, you know, I was on a couple of flights, and I put that on, and it was so bad I couldn't finish it, and yes. I was, like, hostage, you know, on an airplane. I'm leery of this uh, next Jurassic uh, Park, but, yeah, I get what you're saying. It's uh, it's a popular franchise, and I'm sure a lot of people are going to turn out. Well, yeah, the if you look at the box office, especially for Jurassic World, the numbers for that are so astronomically high. It was, it was you know, at the time, billion-dollar grosses are more common now, but even that, that was only seven years ago, and it was a billion-dollar. It was like the third or fourth billion-dollar grosser ever. Um, and it was kind of surprised people, like, well, we knew Jurassic Park was uh, – rebooting Jurassic Park would be big, but not this big. And I just think um, there's really no ceiling you can put on this movie when you consider the continuing popularity of the franchise – bringing back the original three actors. And then the fact that I think Jurassic Park has kind of become the most universally beloved movie of our time. It, it kind of goes in waves. Like 10 years ago, if you would have asked me, what, what, what do you think is the most universally beloved movie? I would have probably said Back to the Future. Mm. Um, but now if Jurassic Park feels like the answer now. You know, I just went and saw Jurassic Park performed by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra live oh, to okay. picture. Nice. And it was a sold out crowd during the pandemic. It was, I mean, it, there's a, it's a property that transcends superhero as far as popularity to me. Because the, the awe of seeing dinosaurs on the big screen, that won't go away. Sure. So this could be the big one this summer. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the arts section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm here with the Daily Herald at Sean Stangland, and we're talking about uh, some summer releases that are coming out. And it wouldn't be summer without some uh, Disney and Pixar releases. Lightyear is set to come out on June 17th. I'm a little confused on the, the premise here because the original Toy Story featuring Buzz Lightyear the toy came out in 1995, and then this movie Lightyear is about the real Buzz Lightyear and it kind of feels futuristic so I'm, do you have any sense of the timeline here so presumably the movie Lightyear is a movie in the Toy Story universe based on the toy oh okay <laughs> yes the, this is one of the strangest uh, reaches for a premise for a big blockbuster movie they're just trying to do anything they can to extend the Toy Story franchise so it is 
a Buzz Lightyear adventure with Emperor Zurg, who is his enemy as, you know, the t- his toy enemy was Emperor Zurg in the Toy Story movies. But it's a complete tonal shift. It's done as a futuristic adventure. It's rated PG. Randy Newman isn't going to be around to sing You've Got a Friend of Me this time. They Michael Giacchino is doing the music, and he's sort of the number two go-to guy if you want John Williams-type <laughs> bravado, but you can't get John Williams. So I don't know who this movie is for, quite honestly. I don't know if this is a movie aimed at kids who I think will be confused by what it's supposed to be, or maybe they don't care. Maybe they just, it says Buzz Lightyear, so I want to see it. Is this Disney testing the waters of the increasingly growing numbers of adult Disney fans to see if they will turn out for a, not exactly an adult (laughs) animation, uh, animated film, but something that's more in the vein of a summer blockbuster than a kid's movie? Um, this is a big question mark. I suspect it will be huge on Disney+. Plus. Mm-hmm. I don't know how it can do at the theater. The uh, family movies have been the big question mark during the pandemic. Um, the Bad Guys, which is a movie that came out earlier this year, did okay. Um, but it's not like breaking records or anything. But it was number one for a few weeks in, a, in kind of a fallow period. Um, but, of course, the biggest uh family movie success of the past of the entire pandemic was in Kanto, and that didn't happen until it was on disney plus you were talking about most beloved films and that's probably you know depends on generational but there was a period probably where toy story was you know, oh for sure people just like love toy story and you know toy story 3 and then maybe i don't know maybe toy story 4 took it down a notch the whole franchise <laughs> Yeah, that the Toy Story four was a was an anomaly, wasn't it? I don't know why they made it. I'm sure glad they did. I loved it. I love all those movies. But uh, yeah, I didn't have a problem with it. Yeah. But I just feel like <laughs> in general, it felt like people were just like, okay, <laughs> we're doing this again. <laughs> Which you know, there may be some some of that with this too. Like really, we're doing this again. So moving on, I would consider myself a, a Baz Luhrmann fan. I enjoyed Moulin Rouge quite a bit when it came out. Uh, now he's telling the story of one of America's most well known pop culture figures, Elvis Presley. This new film, Elvis, stars Austin Butler as the king, and the film gets an automatic boost in legitimacy with its casting of Tom Hanks as the the colonel. What do you think? Uh, The movie looks, it certainly looks like a Baz Luhrmann movie, and even the marketing, uh, they just put out some new posters this week that are like uh, framed in gold and kind of with that same that same aesthetic that Baz Luhrmann's marketing has a lot. Like it definitely, they want you to think of Moulin Rouge when you see these posters and why you think of Strictly Ballroom. This is the, the most interesting thing about this movie probably is that this is the movie that Tom Hanks was shooting when he became the world's most famous COVID patient. He was in Australia shooting this when he, he announced that he had COVID-19, which was the same day that uh, it was declared a global pandemic. So this is... This is another movie that's been in the works for a long time. Uh, It's finally coming to the screen. It's only Baz Luhrmann's sixth movie, which is kind of shocking if you think about how long he's been around. He hasn't made one since The Great Gatsby, which was 2013. Uh, So I'm sure it's going to be big and bold and operatic, and I don't know if people are going to turn out for it. I don't know if this is the kind of thing people want to see in the movie theater. This seems like the kind of story that people would probably like to consume in a limited series to learn more, mm-hmm. to have it go deeper over a longer period of time. Of course, this film may be three and a half hours long. Yeah. <laughs> the strangest thing about it is that Tom Hanks is wearing this uh, grotesque fat suit for yeah. it. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know why we're still doing that. Uh, we just hire an actor who, who looks like the person you want to play. <laughs> but I suppose... 
if you can get a chance to hire Tom Hanks for your right. your very risky Elvis movie starring <laughs> a, a person nobody's ever heard of, then I guess you do that. But yeah, this could be the big thing for Austin Butler, who previous to this, uh, probably most people have just seen him in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood playing one of the Manson family. Uh, <laughs> who, as Brad Pitt put in that movie, was on a horsey. <laughs> yeah. But my wife knew who he was. I guess he's like a fa- he's got a background in fashion, so she was very familiar with Austin Butler. But I will say there's some hardcore Elvis fans out there, uh, extremely loyal. Um, I could see going to see this, but on the flip side, also very tough critics. So if they don't feel like it, it did their hero justice, then uh, there could be a backlash. Another big Marvel movie that's hitting the big screen on July 8th, Thor, Love and Thunder. Chris Hemsworth is back. And I feel like uh, director Ty Watiti uh, breathed new life into this franchise. We don't see the like fourth parts too often. No, he's the first character in the MCU to get his own solo fourth movie. And yeah, Taika Waititi did. I don't think we would have a fourth Thor movie without Taika Waititi getting the job to do Ragnarok a few years ago. It really... It really put a whole new spin on the franchise in general, the MCU, and I think added a lot to Endgame, actually, the the humor and the character arc that Ragnarok set up. And this, the new wrinkle in this is Thor is relearning how to be a superhero, and apparently Jane Foster, played by Natalie Portman, somehow acquires the mantle of Thor. So we've got two Thors in this movie, uh, and we have Russell Crowe joining the cast as Zeus, Mm. and Christian Bale as the as the villain gore the god butcher and the guardians of the galaxy are in this movie so it's another big (laughs) mashup it looks to have from the trailer the same the same kind of freewheeling uh feel as thor ragnarok uh very colorful i should be more i feel like i should be more excited for it but i do feel like it's kind of a known quantity we'll shift into a different theme there's a a small group of filmmakers that operate outside of the kind of this blockbuster realm and are allowed to make the movies they want and their names alone can generate interest. I'm talking about the Coen brothers, Quentin Tarantino, Christopher Nolan, Paul Thomas Anderson, a couple others. And I'm not talking about artistry because, you know, that's subjective, but these are filmmakers that can put out things that will get wide releases and have the potential to make money. And it feels like Jordan Peele has entered that club uh, and there's quite a bit of excitement when he comes out with something new. His latest titled Nope will be released on July 22nd. Uh, I don't know a lot about the premise, which I think is by design. Is the studio really just banking on this being a, a Jordan Peele film and, and people remembering Get Out? Oh, for sure. And to the point where they gave him uh, one of the Super Bowl commercials this year, where the first trailer for this was a Super Bowl commercial and sold almost entirely on his name because the trailer doesn't give you, I mean, it's an alien movie, ostensibly, but we don't get much of a sense of what the plot is or what's going to happen. And we want it that way. On one hand, this is great. I like this kind of, this way of selling movies, this selling a movie on, on the promise instead of selling it on what it is. I feel like too many trailers, I mean, this has been a problem for years. So many trailers show you everything, whereas I would rather see almost nothing and want to be enticed to see it. So of course, that does beg the question, is Jordan Peele the next M. Night Shyamalan? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, that was a very good thing for a, for a little bit, then it was a very bad thing for a long time, and now it's kind of bounced back to good. Old didn't perhaps get the great critical reception, but it made money, 
And M. Night Shyamalan, I think there's a general positive feeling about him again. So if this follows the same trajectory, this would be Jordan Peele's sign. Wait a minute. It is Jordan Peele's signs. It's about, it's about <laughs> aliens. So that means the village is next. Oh, oh no. no. <laughs> Beware the fourth Jordan Peele movie. <laughs> no, no. Let's not put that on him. But uh, yeah, I'll be interested uh, you know, to see how nope does and then the summer will wrap up with a, a new movie from george miller the acclaimed director behind all the mad max movies including 2015's oscar nominated fury road but this new film isn't a mad max project do you know much about it nobody knows much about it which again this is the most attractive thing about it in fact just today as we're recording this a 20 second teaser for the trailer came out so by the time people are listening to this the trailer will be out there you you in the future have a better idea of what this movie is than than we do right now <laughs> all it's playing at the Cannes film festival it's mm-hmm. called 3000 years of longing and idris elba plays a genie okay. who grants wishes to tilda swinton oh. and really isn't that all you need to know <laughs> from the director of Mad Max Fury Road and Babe Pig in the City? <laughs> I mean, this is going to be something to see. <laughs> I'll go see anything with Tilda Swinton. She's one of my favorites. So if she picks something to get involved with, I usually know it's quality. So really quickly, uh, three films that, that I want to see and I'm interested to see how they perform at the box office are The Black Phone, a horror movie with uh, Ethan Hawke. The film adaptation of the immensely popular novel Where the Crawdads Sing and the action film Bullet Train. I think all these films have audiences, potentially. I, I, you know, I wouldn't be able to predict how they're going to do, but I could see something like The Black Phone being like this uh, word-of-mouth horror film. You know, Every summer there seems to be something that kind of generates popular buzz and everyone's got to go see it. I think this could be that. Yeah, horror films always have a good shot at being a surprise hit. Um, so I guess you shouldn't say that they're surprised, but, (laughs) but it seems, and they don't have to make much money to be profitable in most cases. This one, it's from Scott Derrickson, who also directed Ethan Hawke in Sinister. And it looks like it's in that same vein. It's, this is the movie that Scott Derrickson made when he got fired from Dr. Strange in the multiverse of madness. So, so we'll see if there's any hints of a chip on his shoulder in this film. Uh, (laughs) I'll be interested to see that. Uh, The other, the other one you, you mentioned that I think has a shot. To, to be a sleeper hit is that is bullet train that also showed some footage at CinemaCon that made some waves uh brett you got brad pitt mm-hmm. in a in a supporting role in a kung fu train movie uh-huh. so we'll see what else brad pitt can do. i mean is there anything brad pitt can't do <laughs> <laughs> yeah, visually it looked really cool so yeah it'll be interesting to see how all these uh summer movies do it's pretty important because if we see some big numbers, then we'll see we'll see the film industry maybe return to, to making certain things. But if it underperforms, I don't know what the consequences are to that. Right, and and I don't know if the studios even know what the consequences are. Like I was talking earlier about Ghostbusters Afterlife, it barely broke a hundred million dollars domestic, and they announced a sequel already. Sony announced a sequel. Meanwhile, Uncharted topped out around four hundred million dollars global. It did better than Ghostbusters. They haven't announced a sequel yet. <laughs> so, and that's a movie that Sony was churning for like thirteen years. So that's a movie they need to establish a franchise, and it seems like it made enough money to justify making more, but they haven't announced it yet. And that's with possibly the biggest movie star of the moment, Tom Holland, in it. So I think we're still in this period where nobody's quite sure what they're doing. (laughs) But I think we could, you know, if you're... If they were taking bets on FanDuel, you'd go all in on Jurassic World, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Sean Stanglin is the widescreen columnist for the Daily Herald and the assistant news editor. You can follow him on Twitter at Sean Stanglin, D-H. Sean, thanks so much. Thank you. 
And that's going to wrap up this edition of the art section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the art section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening.